0: Please listen carefully, carefully, carefully.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Utterly Moderate podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss important topics by focusing on just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and biases. I'm Alison
0: Dagnus and I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How are you today, Allie? I am great. Lawrence, how are you? I'm doing well. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? I did. Thank you very much. How about you? I did, and I know that uh, the grocery stores must be rolling out their Christmas tree shaped butter for you. So, you know, on to the next holiday.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep, we, we've lopped off the turkey heads off of the butter. We're ready now for the for the evergreen shaped uh, balls of lard. Yep, bring it on.
0: This might be an unpopular opinion, but my favorite day of the Christmas season is not actually Christmas. It's actually Christmas Eve. How come? I, I don't know. It's just, you know, the the excitement and, um, you know, reading the night before Christmas and just yeah. you know, all the excitement and watching a movie. and Scrooge I, you know, with
1: Bill Murray. It's Scrooge my Scrooge is ever.
0: good. We actually, mm-hmm. we watch uh, all the Christmas movies, you know, uh, It's a Wonderful Life and all that kind of stuff. And then once the kids go to bed, my brother-in-law, Chris, always requests Scrooge and we always put it on. So,
1: yep, that's our, we actually watch that <laughs> with the kids. So, my, my children still, the kids are older. Oh, my kids watched it when they were younger. You know, when when my daughter, when Caroline was seven, at some point, somebody whizzes past us and she goes, go back to Jersey, you moron. And it's from <laughs> Scrooge. You know, I mean, because I got to teach him the real important things
0: about religion. That guy was, I think he was the lead singer of the New York Dolls. He sure
1: was. David Johansson. David Johansson. Yeah. David Johansson. Yeah. He yeah. was
0: excellent in that She's movie. He's so
1: good. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Frisbee the dog. Yeah, I love Christmas Eve. I love Christmas Day. I love all of it.
0: Oh, I love yep. all of it. Yeah, I mean, we're we're splitting hairs here, but uh,
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's fantastic. It is fantastic. And that is now to be looked forward to as we dive face first into December. We are in the countdown. Just ask Hallmark, it's the countdown to Christmas. <laughs> you can get you can get one of those great movies every 2 hours and in an hour and 45 minutes, there's going to be some sense of tension where you don't know if the woman who's a banker who's in the middle of the country for an undisclosed reason, she falls in love with a rancher <laughs> and there's going to be some tension. And you don't know if there's going to be that chaste kiss at the end where she stays because she's discovered Christmas and also the fact that she really is in love with the rancher. Uh, that's going to settle itself in exactly 12 minutes. And then they will loop on to the next Hallmark movie. I'm telling you, I love December. I really
0: friend do. of the pod, Hillary Burton Morgan, I believe, is in quite a few Hallmark Christmas movies.
1: Shut your mouth! Is she really? Yeah,
0: she is indeed. So look
1: out <gasps> for her. Yeah, that's another reason to love her. She is. I just know she's
0: in at least a few. Yeah.
1: Ugh, national treasure. God yeah. bless her. I love her. That's wonderful. So what do what we got on tap today, Allie? Well, today we are going to be joined by Rosalind Weissman, who is an author. And she is an educator and she is a delight. And when I knew her back in the day, I knew her as Ross, um, but now she is Rosalind. And she is the um, head of an organization that's called Cultures of Dignity. And she has a new book coming out next year. And we will be talking to her about all of that.
0: You, you know, you mentioned calling her Ross. Uh And our listeners wouldn't know this because this was all the back and forth setting this show up, but (laughs) – I was, I was privy to a lot of the conversation between you and her assistant because I was CC'd on all those emails. And every time her assistant would say, yes, I will book Rosalind for this time. You'd say, um, first of all, I'm going to call her Ross.
1: <laughs> it was more of a warning order really than anything because I just knew it was like 52 years. I'm going to call her Ross. It was
0: every time and it was hilarious. I just sat yeah. uh, I can watch with the CC position.
1: <laughs> yeah, sorry.
0: Are they meaning happen. to put me in on this convo? Because this is fun. <laughs> I enjoy
1: watching this. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, yes, Rosalind. Rosalind. Um no, I mean it's really cool to it's first of all, it's cool to watch the people that you grew up with uh, as grown-ups, right? And it's cool to watch them as like fully formed professional successful human beings um because uh, who doesn't love that? And um Rosalind has become this, you know, force of nature in education and is advocating for all the right things. She's advocating for um, equality and she's advocating against bullying. And she's advocating for, you know, for kids and uh, young adults speaking up um, and taking ownership. And um, she's doing it at a time when it's really damn hard. And I know that as teenagers, uh, as a parent of teenagers, because it is really, really hard these days. So um, uh, I am very excited for this conversation with Rosalind.
0: And we're going to talk about her new book, but uh, you want to key our audience in on another book she wrote that actually went on to get quite a bit of attention.
1: So, I think the book that you are alluding to is Queen Bees and Wannabes. It is. Uh, She has written several books, um, but that book in particular was turned into the movie Mean Girls. Love that movie. You love that movie? Is that what you said? It
0: was very good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so uh, we will talk to her about that book and we will talk to her about the movie and um, that what it was like seeing that book as a movie because I wouldn't know. None of my books have been turned into movies, but <laughs> Steven Spielberg, I'm talking to you. You still have a chance.
0: We know my, you're a loyal listener.
1: My, you know, my um my latest book was turned into. It, it's now on Audible, and the rights were bought uh, to be distributed in Vietnam. That seems really, really specific. Yeah. Hmm. Why Vietnam? Everything i everything
0: all the time.
1: Yeah, in Vietnam. About
0: American politics.
1: Yep, in Vietnam. Being
0: distributed in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh,
0: yeah. Did you read for the Audible book?
1: I did not do the reading. Um, first of all, people have told me, and by people I mean my husband has told me that my <laughs> voice can sometimes be creating. Um,
0: Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> before, before, we, before we finish this line of... <laughs> let's just hit the brakes on that. Uh, When did this occur? Uh, Was this part of his vows? Um, You know, yes, it was, will you, you, will you Peter (laughs) take this
1: woman with a very grating voice? I can't remember if it was the priest or the rabbi who said it, but yeah.
0: So I guess, I guess, I guess what I'm asking you is all of Mm -hmm. our listeners would like to know. um, Yes. When you tell Allie Dagnus, she has a grating voice, (laughs) (laughs) physical response that you had to your husband. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: well here's and the joy of pete is that um he has never actually said that i have a grating voice he's what covered he, his ears oh no what he does is he's so he's so passive aggressive about stuff he just moves like right around it he will say you know there are times that your voice carries and then i'll just leave that right there and then i'll walk into the other room and he will just leave me to kind of like spin around in my head and that's about it yeah
0: Honey, you're using your auditorium voice.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, Like, huh, I heard that.
0: Pete was a nice guy. I'm going to miss him. Yeah. (laughs) 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 All right, Allie. Well, today on our episode, we're going to talk about uh, a variety of topics, but one that's a theme on many of our pods, which is trying to bring the temperature down in America.
1: You know, one of the things that Rosalind writes about is the importance of, of respect and, you know, respecting other people and listening to other people and communicating effectively. Um, and that's just so important. And so, you know, continuing the conversations that we're having with people from, you know, various walks of life with different interests and, um, different, uh, foci, I think are, you know, that's, that's part of the fun of it, you know, getting to hear different perspectives on different things, Um, but it also is part of this big experiment just trying to say, you know, hey, it's a huge world out there and let's hear each other. Let's listen to each other a little bit more.
0: I agree, Allie. And actually, uh, our listeners might not know this, and I don't know that you and I are ever really going to explain this deeply on the show because it's better to keep people guessing, but... I think it makes better uh, radio or podcasting or whatever the heck we call this thing. Um, But you and I actually have very different views on a whole host of political issues. And yet we are able to come together every single week and have civil conversations despite those differences because of our commitment to this thing that we're doing to bringing the temperature down, listening to people, uh, considering all the facts, even if you maintain your point of view that you had going into it. You're willing to listen, you're willing to change things, willing to incorporate things into your pre-existing worldview. And so, um, I don't know, hopefully we're modeling good, good conversations here.
1: Oh, I mean, I certainly hope so. And yes, we definitely differ in our opinions about things. And we are okay to disagree about things and even every now and then fight about things and then <laughs> get over it because that's kind of what people do. And... Used to do. Yeah, you know, <laughs> gosh, I, uh, I just hate this take your ball and go home mentality because that is not the way to get anything done. If you If you operate as a scorched earth, you know, campaign, this is everything is a war and you've got to just annihilate the other side, then there's not going to be another side and then there is no debating because you're just standing alone and i'm really sorry i i really thought we were all in this together and what that means is even if you disagree with somebody you provide them the respect that they deserve by dint and virtue of them being a human being. And then you up at a level where if somebody is a relative of yours, then they deserve by dint and virtue of that fact alone, even more respect. And then you up at another level, if you are their friend, because what friends do is they have each other's backs and there is no one person who is going to agree with you on absolutely everything you know and what i tell my students is if you're with if you only hang out with people if you're only dating people who agree with you um you how boring is that and i'm not saying like only hang out with people who you will fight with or debate i don't i don't like fighting and i don't like debating but for god's sake just get some perspective that's not your own you might learn a lot and i love hearing other people's perspectives, because it makes me it just broadens my horizon. It teaches me a lot. And um, I then approach the world in a way that can provide some insight that maybe somebody else doesn't have. And who doesn't want to be the kind of person who makes people think differently and smile a little bit as opposed to somebody who walks into a room and shuts everything down. So I don't know, Lawrence, you and I have had our skirmishes in the past, but they're small and I can't even remember what the heck they're about because
0: I can't because I have it on tape.
1: I'm sure you do. And you know what? That is going to be for our... When we start a subscription model, because we have to. Uh,
0: (laughs) Utterly moderate
1: plus. (laughs) Utterly moderate after dark. Uh, It'll be like any fight that you have of us that's made it to the cutting room floor. Um, I think that's awesome. I, I honestly don't remember any of it because we are above all else. We are friends. And that, to me, carries the day. I just don't have the bandwidth to remember every single thing that we disagree on i just don't i do remember the things that i authentically like about you and they begin with your children and then move (laughs) to your wife and uh everything else
0: that doesn't have to do with you specifically
1: well if i mean you're a really (laughs) good editor and you did start this podcast and you let me be a part of it and then like you know 10 or 12 spots down it's, it's you um I am very excited that we get to have today another expert on another topic about which I know very little, even though I have teenage daughters. It still is nice to talk to somebody who knows a lot about teenagers. And that person is Rosalind
0: Weissman. That's right. We're going to have a great conversation with her coming up next.
1: Rosalind Weissman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Ali. First, um, can you tell us about Cultures of Dignity? How did you come to establish this organization? And what are the most important tenets of your company?
2: Wow. Well, for many years, I had been writing books and I um, was teaching in all different kinds of schools, uh, social-emotional learning. And it felt to me like I needed to do more in-depth, on-the-ground work day in and day out to understand why it is so hard to implement social-emotional learning into, into schools, into the systems of schools, into a classroom. What was the resistance points? Why did teachers feel overwhelmed by it? Why did they not want to teach advisory, for example, or a lot of people don't want to do that when they're teachers? Um What were the barriers and how could we do things that were also um, extremely responsive to and reflective of young people's experiences? Because social emotional learning is only as good as the context in which it can be taught. So I made the decision to, um, it was a complex decision, uh, very complicated in retrospect, but I I made the decision to stop writing books and to really focus on lesson plans and working with schools. So out of that came, um, I co-founded the, an organization with a man named Charlie Kuhn, who had um, started working with me in about 2014, I believe, 2013. And in 2016, we started Cultures of Dignity about five years ago to be able to really do this systemic work.
0: Before we move on, do you mind explaining to the listeners what social and emotional learning is?
2: Sure. So social emotional learning is... Um, the skills that we hopefully um, think are important to teach young people to understand their emotions, to understand how their emotions impact their thinking and their decision making and their interactions with other people so that they can understand how they um, can manage themselves better and then be able to speak to to speak to other people um, in more, in more um, civil ways and in in ways that are more able that they can truly advocate for what they believe, what they think, what they need. Um, and that the more social intelligence and more emotional understanding of their emotions that they have, then the better able they will be to engage in their academics and to be able to be good citizens overall in their schools and in their communities.
0: Can you give us an example of of an important way in which we should be aware of our social and emotional selves?
2: Sure. Well, so, I mean, one of the most important things that I think we all need to get very, very clear on is that emotions are real and they can pass. They're not permanent. And we are dealing with tremendous amounts of anxiety. Masquerading is lots of different things. Anger, rage, self-righteousness, anxiety. Um, But we... We are so sometimes unaware of how our emotions are directing our thoughts and then our behavior with other people and then the negative consequences of that. And so social emotional learning it will teach you how to understand your emotions, your anger, your anxiety, what you do when you get anxious, what you do when you get angry, and then transform that into how you manage your anger um, in a way where you have the best chance of advocating for yourself effectively and being able to listen to other people. Social emotional learning is often a lot about listening and um, listening to yourself and listening to others. And the way that I define listening is being prepared to be changed by what you hear. One of the things that unfortunately that can happen in social emotional learning is that we tend to glance over topics as if we understand what they, what we mean by them and listening would be a good one. So we talk to young people about, you know, you should li- listen or um, one person speaks at a time or those kinds of things. And if we really don't provide the context and the skills to understand that context, then these words actually don't really mean anything. Similar to words like kindness, empathy, compassion, anti-bullying programs, bully, like all of these things, we, we actually don't have oftentimes really clear understandings and definitions of those things. And so a good social emotional learning program defines that for young people so that they have the words to be able to understand the world around them and then be able to operate in it effectively.
1: So, Rosalind, you were me- you were talking about bullying and I know that that's what you have written several books about. Could you describe some of the books that you have written?
2: Sure. So, um I was asked to write a book out of the blue when I was 23 or 4. Um, because I was teaching uh, young women self-defense and somebody knew that I was doing that and they wanted to um, write a book about self-defense in women for the next generation of women. This was like mid-90s. And so I, having no plan about writing a book, decided to write this book and it was called Defending Ourselves. And I think it came out when I was 25. Very mid-90s, like second wave feminism kind of kind of thing. And then um, I, and then I ran a nonprofit and I was teaching um, girls and boys about, there was no words for any of this stuff at the time, but I was talking to them about their social lives and how it was impacting um, how they showed up in their relationships with their friends, their family, engaging in school. I really was just teaching and making mistakes, learning from young people and then making, and then changing what I was doing. And so about, I mean, it seems like there was a huge gap between defending ourselves and then about seven, I mean, but that's not true. So like seven years later, six, seven years later, um, a book, the book that I wrote called Queen Bees and Wannabees came out. And that for better and for worse, really changed my life because that was a huge bestseller and it became the movie um, and ultimately Broadway show Mean Girls. Um, And then, and that was about the social lives of girls. And it was me, literally, it was me pretending or imagining that there was a parent next to me, and I was saying like, here are all the things you need to understand about your daughter's social life. And then, several years after that, a couple of years after that, I wrote Queen Bee Moms and Kingpin Dads, um, which I might need to republish, I think, and re- recalibrate and republish for this generation of parents. And um, and then I wrote after that a book called uh, Masterminds and Wingmen about the social lives of boys. And I had about 150 guys from fourth grade through 12th grade help me write that book. And Queen Bee's also was absolutely, it's gone through three or four editions, um, has always been infused with the opinions and editorial feedback of young people. I don't write anything without young people telling me where I'm wrong and what I need to do differently. So um, yeah, those are, some of the, those are some of the books that I've written.
1: I'm sure you don't remember. I bumped into you um, either the day that you got your first book contract or like the day after you got your first book contract, um, because it was one of the most embarrassing days of my life where I had um, gone to go get my driver's license renewed in D.C. and had inadvertently walked many, many blocks and stood in line for many, many hours with my skirt tucked into my pantyhose. <laughs> and I had not realized that I was doing that for hours. I mean, hours. It and was no like, one told me <laughs> no
0: that. No one told so me until this mean.
1: little old woman came and tugged at my <laughs> suit jacket and was like, sweetheart. You're you're showing your tush to Everybody and I was like oh god and I was So I was so mortified That's I turned awful. around it was as if The entire DMV was staring at me because They were it was like well they also had nothing miles. Else to do horrifying. We all, Yeah we all just uh, sit at the
2: DMV in DC For like uh, days and days Oh my gosh I'm so sorry oh, to hear that Ali. I, I'm so sorry. I took all of my paperwork I ran Ross I just ran
1: <laughs> like I abandoned Ship I ran and I ran I just was running and running and running and I, I Got to the metro and I got on the metro and I just just got off the metro at Cleveland Park and I was crying and there was I was I just looked like I look like a troll doll on top of a pencil where you like do this to the pencil and your hair is standing on end and and I got out and I started walking up like blindly like I was so mortified I was still bright red and I ran into you and I I just looked oh, like Allie. a yeti and oh, and I was like like I couldn't form <laughs> words cuz I was so humiliated. And you're like, Oh, my God, guess what? I just got my first book contract. And I got engaged. And you know, like when I tell my students this, I have like a coffee mug, Size engagement ring, and you just were so happy and so gorgeous, and I was, you know, and I was like sweaty wow. and teary. I was the ugliest oh version God. that I've ever been. And you were like, "How are you?" And I was like, uh, "I'm doing great. I haven't oh. had a date in six months. Uh, I'm still wearing a <laughs> C span." You were, you
0: were Kristen Wig in Bridesmaids, and she was Maya Rudolph.
1: Um, I, I you know what, Kristen Wig never sank to my level at in Bridesmaids. Like as that bad as it terrible. ever got. I'm so sad. Oh, it was. I'm it so- was. Sorry. Mortifying. It was absolutely... That was one of the most embarrassing days. Why did you have to rub it in your face,
0: Rosalind? Not
1: not even the first just, but it, that's was up there. That's
2: a no, it was horrible. that's such a horrible it was and so I, oh, funny, yeah, the funny <laughs> you now. were so happy yeah I was so happy yeah. well I'm glad well I'm glad yeah, it i was great. I'm glad that oh I just wow okay
1: when your book came out I felt like I, I felt like I kind of shared it with you I was like those tear-stained pages from Jeez, the DMV right, right they right. were right
2: there they were right there with Ross it was oh, very good well gosh yeah. Well, at least there was a nice woman, a nice, you know, nice girl who, even though apparently she was elderly, who said, hey, honey, can you oh, actually, yeah. like fix that? Yeah, no, hey, oh, if not, so you know,
1: I, I went back the next day to get my driver's license because I was still, mm-hmm. I was clutching these like, you know, snot filled, tear filled papers. And I went back the next day and said, you know, I didn't finish this yesterday. And the woman goes, oh, yeah, we remember. And oh, I was God. like, oh, God. <laughs> Oh no! This is awful. Like a, oh no! This is it just terri- on. This is terrible. Keeps on um, going. Oh, it was great, <laughs> and and oh, I was part of your first publication. There in my you mind. go. You are that, in there my you mind. Go.
2: You know, so it's, it's, wow. It. It, hey, it was a group effort. It was a totally yeah, a group effort. That's exactly. So that's I guess right. we can now all know if people are listening to this that Ali and I went to high school together. It is true. <laughs> it is true. We knew each other. Back that's in the day. right. Right. That and is so exactly. Great. And lots of people have <laughs> lots of people. And Allie, you would be able to answer some of these questions, I get the questions of, uh, was Queen Bee's, um, Queen Bee's for many, many years until this year, actually, I think I've made some headway that um, there's a high school in DC called National Cathedral School that I taught oh. for a long time, but I was teaching at other schools too, but they felt very strongly that Mean Girls was based on them. And I had a lot of girls, like I said before, from Queen Bees that were helping me write the book. And so there were girls from that school who were helping me write the book. But there were also oh. girls from Sidwell and Murray and Wilson, like all the public schools and private schools. I had tons of mm-hmm. girls helping me write that book. Mm-hmm. Um, but just this year, I had the um, president of the president, the uh, editor of the newspaper um, at that school, write to me and say, "Can you please clarify this? Because we still think that it's all based on us." And um, and then occasion, and I said, "Which is the truth? It is not based on your school." <laughs> but the second one is also the question I get of like, "What were you? What were you when you were in high school?" Or is it based on your you know experiences at the school you went to? And, um, and so it's just it's always really funny to think about like, my experiences were, you know, some of them were hard, but they were no different in their, they were not particularly more difficult than anybody else's. They were complex, they were hard, but you know, young people, you know, Ali, your life was complicated in high school, everybody's life is complicated in high school. So it was interesting yeah. to, it's always interesting to be on the receiving end of like, well, were you a mean girl? Were you a crazy? Right. I'm like, God, what an, it's not an interesting question. <laughs> 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 it's not an original question. No. It's, you know, but yeah, no. it's a funny, it's a funny thing to be part of or whatever created a book that's so part of people's. I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. So anyway, those, that, those are, but that's terrible about your DMV experience. And I'm really sorry about that. Even oh. It was all years ago. That makes me like, Oh God, that's just so terrible. Are you
1: kidding? I love it. It's part of my lecture on the bureaucracy for every intro to American government class I teach. I think it's that's fantastic. Great. Okay. that's part useful. of the zeitgeist. There you go. Yeah, right. Exactly. No, it's very good. Yeah. It's a teaching tool.
0: So my, uh, my next question <laughs> is, um, were you a Queen Bee? Were you a mean girl?
1: <laughs> wow. <Well, laughs> that's a good question, I my Lawrence. Moments. I had my
2: moments. <laughs> I can answer that. Uh she was yeah. not. She was not. No. Thank you. Allie. Absolutely not. No, that is... I was in a very powerful click in eighth grade. That was... I was in a scary click (laughs) in eighth grade. That is for sure. And I was just trying... That that click was like... That was hardcore. That was like survival of the fittest in my eighth grade click.
1: Wow. (laughs) That was before my time. I was in one acres. I know.
2: I know.
0: So Rosalind, how did it feel to write a book and to see it come to life on the big screen and come to life in such a huge way with Tina Fey and Rachel McAdams and Lindsay Lohan? And also a follow up question. Once you once you answer that question, Allie, how did it feel to see your friend's book showing up on the big screen?
2: Well, the first time I saw it was um, they created Paramount created a screening for me in Silver Spring, Maryland. And I got to invite I I, they invited like they had this whole screening, you know, thing. And I hadn't I had seen parts of it and like drafts of it. And i had been looking and I obviously like I was looking at the screenplay and making notes and whatever. But it was the first time that I had seen it as a movie. And um, and my mom was with me also. And um, it was. It was a totally surreal, you can imagine, a completely surreal experience. But I also would you know, it's, it's also important to remember that nobody was really famous then. I mean, Tina was... Lindsay Lohan was by far the most famous person that was in that movie at the time. Tina was like, you know, on Saturday Night Live. So, um, and then nobody knew who li- literally, Oh, and also La- uh, Lacey Chappelle. She was actually, uh, people knew about her too. Um, cause she had been on a TV show, um, party of five, I think, or something like that. I mean, this is back in the day. And, um, so it was surreal and it was um i didn't quite understand what was happening and the other part was that from the time the book came out until the time the movie came out was approximately 18 months so oh that is goodness. yeah so there's a lot of things about queen bees and mean girls that were just a complete anomaly never never happened before not going to happen probably again um and i really didn't understand what was happening at that point i was you know i was teaching I was I was speaking I had actually I mean I was doing a lot of media um I had been I'd been doing a lot of media actually by that point but I but it's different to go from being sort of an educator person who talks on you know Oprah at the time or I don't know some news show or something like that it's different very different to go from that to where you're speaking about the work to it becoming something in the culture and and in pop culture, and that I had zero experience. You know, how would I um, knowing how to de- how to deal with that? I do remember um, that my I had a really funny moment during it where my mom is sitting next to me, and I haven't told her anything about anything. And when I was in high school, my mom traveled a lot for work. She would go like a lot. She would be gone a lot, and when she was gone. I would have parties, and my mother had a collection of pottery. And so, when my mo- when I would have the party, I would take the pottery that um, I didn't want anybody messing around with, and I would put a post it note where the pottery was, so I would remember where to put the pottery before she came back. But I would hide the pottery in all different parts of the house, including under the sink. And there was a moment in the movie where the where the mom opens the drawer and it opens the, you know, under the sink and takes out like one of her African pottery things. And my mother, who's not really never been a sneaky person, doesn't understand sarcasm, like is a generally nice person, never understood why I lied to her. And I lied to her constantly in high school. And it was, you know, <laughs> the only moments that she actually was aware and like saw like it was like this moment, like where, the you know, the character like takes the pot from underneath the sink. And knows that her daughter's had the party. And my mom looks at me and all of a sudden is like, are you kidding me? And that was really one of the highlights of of watching that movie for the first time. Like that was it. It was like, that was really like, and I'm good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's an awesome story.
2: That's fantastic. I don't know that I ever knew that. That is so great.
0: (laughs) How did you feel watching Mean Girls Alley, knowing that your friend was involved in this such a huge way?
1: Oh, I loved it. I mean, honestly, like, you know, Ross, Rosalind, um, was, uh, you know, at that point, you know, as she said, was already kind of everywhere. Like I would, I, I made a joke at some point, like I would turn around and turn on Good Morning America and like, there's Rosalind. Like, so it just sort of felt, like, of course, they're going to turn, um, sure. uh, you know, of course, they're going to make a movie out of her book. Um, that just makes that just makes sense. Uh, and and then it just gave it gave like validity to my fantasies of somebody making a movie out of one of my books, which is never going to happen. And um uh, but that's the goal. And that's what keeps me running, literally running in the mornings. It's like, well, it could happen one day, maybe. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was super cool and really fun. And because, you know, I mean, we had such a small high school class that um, we really did, you know, there was never sort of like knives out, you know, kind of stuff. So it was all like, oh, okay, yeah, that's great.
0: I've seen your book on screen before, Super Mad. You didn't see the insurrection?
1: Yeah, that's, that's like a very good point. It's, uh, yeah, coming soon to a capital near you. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah,
2: so, no, I think that everybody was sort of like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That tracks. <laughs> oh, oh right? well, really did <laughs> it really didn't to me at the time, so <laughs> it was, did not to me.
1: So, you know, since I do political science and you write a lot about, you know, talking and communication and the importance of words, um... I would love for you to, to to maybe translate some of what you do with Cultures of Dignity and, and maybe help us out a tiny little bit, because both Lawrence and I teach college students who arrive on our campus from very different backgrounds, with very different levels of engagement, and, you know, they come from different communities. Um, and so, how would you recommend we bridge these differences so that our students can live their lives and be successful on their own terms, which I know is important for you, um, but while also learning about the world around them and, ex- you know, being exposed to different people and accepting of of others? What, what kind of hints would you give
2: us? Do you oh, think? my gosh. I know. Um, that's a hard one. I mean, it's well, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's like, where do I even begin? Because... For my whole career, I've been trying my best to give young people a voice and to see that young people are the subject matter experts of their lives and that we need to frame the theories, dynamics, things that you all talk about in political theory that I talk about in my work, which is very, very aligned with political theory about how group dynamics, for example, work or how an individual um, makes their way within a group. How those things happen, and how how you get to a place of dehumanizing someone else, or um, or aligning yourself with other people. What is the what is loyalty? De- how is it defined? And I've always thought that um, we have to listen to young people to understand the context in which we would frame these dynamics. And. There are two things that are happening that are so unbelievably frustrating to me. And one of the one of the benefits that I have though about my work is that I'm constantly in communication with young people and I get to disagree with them all the time or they get to disagree with me all the time. And I and we have robust conversations with constantly about the issues that we that we are so consumed by now. And so it's a wonderful thing that I get to talk to college students about um, cancel culture and about the various iterations of that. And what does that mean? Um, I get to talk to young people about how they perceive their rights and also their responsibilities to other people. Um, And at the same time, it is extraordinarily frustrating to me to see some young people believe that their voice matters more than everybody else's and that they, um, that they hide behind. And I I mean, I'll, I'll go to adults in a minute, but like to hide behind, I'll use you all, not you all, but you, you are professors to hide behind. This is my perspective to hide behind anonymous, um, social media platforms where you are trashing a professor Instead of and maybe and, you know, we could say that this is really our responsibility because we didn't ever teach social, emotional learning to young people so they don't know how to tell a person in a position of authority when they're upset with them or frustrated or whatever. So I don't I'm not putting it all on them. But it is way too convenient to try and trap to trash somebody anonymously and not go to that professor themselves in what in whatever way is appropriate and handle it directly. And I understand that there are power dynamics involved. I absolutely appreciate that. I understand that we should have done a better job of helping young people be able to advocate for themselves with skills and emotional regulation. Everything that I do, but to go after people the way that they are doing that is extraordinarily frustrating to me. I like that is not the voice I wanted them to have. I wanted them to have a voice to have actual autonomy. Trashing somebody on on social media is not that is not the way. And like my the principle I live in my life is to be easy on people hard on ideas. And I think and we're living in a culture that is hard on people. And because we're so hard on people, we can be easy. on We are easy on ideas. Meaning we can't have the rigor that we need to to solve these really difficult problems that we have. And I am so frustrated at this group of people that I adore so much that they are not like rising to the to the fabulousness that I know that they are capable of and that we need them to be. So that's on one side. On the other side, um, I'm really struggling with. um I know and I understand and I'm, that people really are um, doubting their institutions, and we have reason to doubt our institutions. Um, and I understand because I've spent my entire life in education about how disappointing education can be and how often it was really connected to racism, to like compliance and not teaching young people how to critically think. Um, I understand that. I understand that teachers have been irresponsible. I mean, I, I really hold that. I mean, I've spent, again, my life trying to hold a, adults accountable for bad behavior. And yet to see parents now going after educators the way that they are, makes me, I just don't even, it, I can, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not easily speechless. And I am, um, I, I, I just, I, it's like, I want to know what happened to parents that they don't believe in the people like wholesale don't believe in the people that they are sending their children to to be in their care of and their education. I understand not not trusting the system overall but I but what happened that we literally with the people that you see and drop off your kids every day that you just don't trust them. And I I that really breaks my heart.
0: What is interesting, I mean, I don't know if this holds true today, but I mean, in my classes, I often teach about this very phenomenon, which is if you ask Americans on surveys, you know, do you trust schools? Is American education failing or succeeding? Those sorts of things. You can get some really negative responses, but at the same time, if you ask Americans grade your child's school, overwhelmingly, they like their child's school, right? And they like their child's teacher. So, Yeah, there is this disconnect of like this abstract idea that like, you know, teachers are bad and unions are bad and schools are bad. And yet everybody seems to like their own, (laughs) which is the
1: the same thing is the case for Congress people. Everybody hates Congress, but they like their congressmen. And that's why Congress people keep getting reelected over and over and over again. They hate the institution, but they like the person who represents them.
0: Can I ask you a, a question? And this may be, you may completely disagree, but I want to go in an opposite direction, which is not like me, a positive direction.
2: Oh, that's weird. <laughs> we can't wallow in cynicism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The boy, that's not like thats
1: not like Lawrence at all. That's strange. Well, no, okay. so I'm going gonna,
0: I'm gonna to give you my impression of what's going on, but it may be incorrect because it's totally anecdotal. But I don't have a lot of firsthand experience with the ways that... Uh, elementary schools and middle schools have changed over time. I was in those schools and then I was out of those schools. And then I, you know, I, I was totally dis- disconnected once I went to high school in the not- late 90s. And then I don't know what's been going on, but then I had kids. And so I listened to my elementary school age kids. I have three kids in elementary school. And the things I hear them say and this is going to sound weird and funny and and it's going to sound mean. I don't mean it in a mean way. It's just true. If I had said the things they say about how they act towards each other and what's cool about, about acting towards each other, it would have made you a dork when I went to school. Mm -hmm. They they talk, they talk, you, you talked earlier about not having the words to describe certain things back in the day, the way that my kids talk and what they prize as being, a good friend and 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 what's really really cool is much more respectful than what we considered cool when we are in, in elementary school. So to me that seems like a paradigm shift, but it's also anecdotal. I think I have good kids. <laughs> they may be going to a good school, but it does seem like a lot of this work that you've been doing has created a pretty big change. I mean, do you, are you seeing that over time?
2: Well, I hope so. Gosh, you know, maybe yes. I mean, I think that and I'm so so pleased that young people have the words to say what they feel. And when we were going to middle school and high school, we didn't, right? Like, I mean, I went through a really, really tough time in high school on a particular issue. And I didn't literally with the person I was dating and I didn't have the words to describe it. And if I had had words to describe it, then I would have been able to get myself help. I would have been able to be better in that relationship. It would have been, it would have been better. Like right? I mean, so much better because I didn't literally have the words. And and it wasn't just about my particular experience. We didn't have words for a lot of things that were happening. And so young people do have words for it, which is why it is so scary when we think about these efforts that are happening around the country right now to literally stop young people from being taught the words to express their feelings and the experience that, that they're, that they're having. And, um, and so I do think that young people have the words for that and um, in a lot of ways, and um, especially for young people as they're getting older, like, you know, teenage people, middle school and teenage people, for them to have the words at, about mental health issues like anxiety and depression, Panic attacks have those things destigmatized, which I think have really, we've done a lot of really amazing work in that. I think that young people are much, much more likely, so much more likely to come forward when they are being abused by an adult. Um, And that in and of itself, regardless of socioeconomic class of the school, um, I think that's huge, huge. I mean, Allie and I went to a private school where, you know, that school, like uh, it was not... unique at all, had significant problems with, with teachers having inappropriate relationships with students. And it was not alone. It was not in any way alone. I have worked for decades working with schools who are repairing the relationships that they had with students at the time. And also now when something, God forbid, happens like that, it, there is it, there's no there's very little stigma of the kid to come forward and say, like, this is happening to me or ask for help or, you know, those kinds of things. So so all for all of those reasons, it is so important. And, and I was so I would agree with you that they have the words. Um, many of them have the words to be able to describe their experiences in a more in more effective ways so that the more, and the more that they can describe it and the more they tell us and the more we can help them. Because there was silence for way too long on any, all of these things.
0: And I don't mean to suggest in any way, shape or form that the work is done, of course. Um, <laughs> but, 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 I, but I just, I just, I just want to, it really, honestly, without any hyperbole, it has been really shocking in a good way to me to hear my kids talk about amongst all their friends, like that kid's a bully. We've identified him as a bully and -hmm. that's not cool to anybody. And Mm -hmm. like that's stigmatized. Like Mm -hmm. that's a complete one (laughs) hundred and eighty from what I was in school and it's really promising and it makes me feel Mm -hmm. good. So,
2: well, I'm glad.
1: Can I I ask a question and I'm not pushing back on, on anything, but I feel like, and perhaps it's just the work that I do and, you know, researching political media i feel like words are used so much that many are losing their meaning and so when i you know i have two daughters who as they've grown up you know if i have a daughter who will say like oh i'm so depressed i'm like okay ah, ah, ah," that is a very specific diagnosis you know and so they've gotten so adroit now it's like trauma
0: trauma you know what i just i just
1: i can you give me the 15 second lecture? Cause I really have to go wash my hair and I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'll give you the 15 second instead of the, the 10 minute lecture that you know (laughs) you are going to get. Um, But wow, do I hear our students using, you know, psychiatric diagnoses inappropriately, you know, everyone's walking around, calling everybody a narcissist, you know? And and so (laughs) like, and sometimes it applies and sometimes it doesn't, you know? And so the idea of like, um, so somebody might be a bully, but they also may be having a bad moment and then come, you know, move away and then come back again and apologize. And so my fear is that with, with the language that we have, with too much language, you know, then there's a backlash effect. Um,
2: do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, my God. Do- absolutely. Of course I do. I never say to you this way. I'd never allow a school to introduce me as a bullying prevention expert ever because kids hate the word bully mm-hmm. and they think it's overused and they think they got the lecture in second grade. And why are we talking about this again? And I don't, I, this is dumb, right? So they, they really shut down. Um, what I do with schools and with my teacher trainings is um, we break down the, you know, everything is not bullying And, um, and so you need to like, there's basically what we do is we say there's mean and there's rude, which is unintentionally trying to excluding or hurting someone's feelings. There's, um, mean, which is intentionally doing that. There's drama, which is a conflict that's entertaining to everybody else, but hurtful to the people involved. And then bullying, which is stripping somebody of their dignity based on something that they that they are perceived to be, you know, an identity, Part of their identity, and those things are very different. And it doesn't mean for every for all of us. It doesn't mean that the you know being someone being mean to you or being rude to you or getting involved in drama isn't hurtful, and preoccupying, but and it needs to be addressed and it needs to be addressed appropriately. And so we can't just lump all these words, you know, this word together. So actually, what's really important to me and always has been really important to me is to, as, as similarly, Ali, is to understand the power of the meaning of words. And so when we, you know, the word respect, which I have written, and I keep thinking about in all different kinds of ways, and I've been doing it for a long time, but I, I always, respect is one of these words that schools love to use, and we completely overuse it, and it, we conflate it with the word dignity. And respect in schools, actually, really, what it really means is um, is apart from its actual definition, which is to look back at someone's achievements and admire them, is that respect actually means to obey and to obey someone who has more power than you do, and um, and it's about compliance. And that's why schools like it so much because they when they say respect, you have to respect, you know, show respect in school. That means show respect to teachers. That means show respect to people of more power and position than you do. Well, if you God forbid like with class issues, race issues, ethnicity issues whatever if, if and the complexities of all of these things and you have a child or and and a child who is developmentally appropriately a teenager and so is having a hard time moderating their particular mood on a particular day that if they don't understand an assignment or if they're frustrated about something in class and they don't appropriately ask appropriately respectfully ask the question in class then that oftentimes gives the system the right to, to punish that child because they're being disrespectful and defiant and defiant as lots of coded words for kids of color. And so respect is often really used as a weapon. It is weaponized to have children be controlled. And, um, and especially when they're, when they really are asking questions or when they are going up against somebody who, who has more power than them, who is not treating other people with dignity. With worth, with inherent worth, and so this we just and we conflate it constantly. And so what I do in my work a lot is to say, and you know, and young people will be silent when they're up against somebody who has more respect, authority than they do, because they know in an institution like that that if they speak out, the institution will back the person with the most power. And so it's that's why they're not they're not there's there's always good reasons why kids don't come forward when bad things are happening. So if we can really be clear about the word respect and be very clear about the word dignity and use the word dignity more in schools, then young people are going to be much more likely to talk to us because we're not being so incredibly hypocritical about these words.
0: So Rosalind, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the COVID pandemic and the impact it's had on the emotional education and social experiences of the young people that you work with? I'm sure this has played I mean, you've already kind of alluded to the anxieties and things like that. Can you talk about COVID and the work you do and the impact it's had?
2: Yeah. So that's, so it's really complex. I mean, in the very beginning, when we were all shut down, there were a lot of young people that were telling me that they liked the shutdown because they could stop doing the things that were exhausting them before the shutdown. Like, I mean, so many kids said to me, I'm so glad I don't have to play travel sports anymore. I'm so glad. I'm so glad I would never have to go back to travel sports. Um, and, um, but, you know, just like having like, you know, a couple of weeks to just, um, decompress in some ways, like just not be out in the world. And especially for children who are more introverted, it was a way to take in some ways to take a break from everything, but then as it continued and continued and continued the sense of loneliness and the sense of, um, what am I, this real sense of loneliness and of not being able to maintain friendships the way that are so important became, you know, just really front and center. And also young people were exhausted being on screens all the time. And school was pretty boring, frankly, you know, for every, I don't know, outstanding teacher who figured out how to teach virtually in an interesting way. The majority were not, I mean, let's just say like they just weren't. It was, you know, last year was pretty easy academically. um, And, um, and kids have said that to me. And now that we've come back into person, lots of children, especially in middle school, are feeling overwhelmed by trying to keep up with everything because they've lost, you know that like they're just it's hard to keep up with all the details and the tracking and the calendars and schedule and all that business. Um, but the other part is that that now what we're dealing with in schools is that the young people are feels like they're about a year behind socially. And so when you're dealing, when you're interacting with seventh graders, they're acting like they're in sixth grade, but then we're disciplining them as if they're in seventh grade. And that's not really fair. It doesn't, it doesn't, and it more the point, it doesn't help the situation because we're disciplining them inappropriately. And if you discipline them inappropriately, then you can't figure out how to get them to a place where they're learning how to not do whatever it is that you didn't like. So I, a lot of teachers and administrators that I work with in those situations now are very much feeling like, okay, if we have a ninth grade class right now, we're having the worst disciplinary things we've ever seen in the history of having these ninth grade, which is very common right now in my experience with schools. We just, we need to think about them as if they are seventh graders and maybe we'll pull them up, you know, behaviorally they'll pull up, but we have, we can't think of them as ninth graders because they're not acting like ninth graders. They're acting like seventh graders. And if we think about them like seventh graders, then we know what to do. Um, If we think about them like ninth graders then we get very confused and very angry and very frustrated, and then everything sort of goes to hell. So it's, it's, it's sort of maneuvering what you've got in front of you. Um, and then we also knew, but, you know, there's a lot of different, look, the, the, the dependence on social media and technology and young people, I think is, you know, it is the default of doing that for the last year and a half has made young people tired but also, it's just even more the default that it was before. So what I'm telling them is, is to separate into three buckets to think about how they want it in their lives. And this comes from my colleague, Devorah Heitner, where you separate technology into consumption, like scrolling through Instagram or you go going down YouTube channel videos. Uh, creating, like creation, like you're doing some really cool coding thing for hours and hours and hours, but, and then you just like, like want to do a deep dive into that. And then connection, like being able to use it for meaningful, meaningful connection. And so if we say to young people, you're not, we've stopped saying to young people, you're addicted to your phones. And we start saying, okay, there's like, look at these three ways we can use this. Let's create some structure around that and understand the impact of consuming without really being aware of what you're consuming. Um, to impact your behavior, to impact your, your sense of self, your sense of comparison, your anxiety, depression, that kind of stuff, that if we can think about it in those three buckets, then young people are going to be much, again, much more likely to say, OK, that makes sense to me. And how can I take control as much as I can of my use of this device in ways that that are reflective of my life, right? Which is, I want to connect with people meaningfully. I want to do things on it that are really cool and that I think are really cool. And I really do have to, because I know that the consumption part of this is manipulating me and everybody constantly. And so I need to be able to figure that out as well. So I think that's, for me, that's the way that I'm talking to young people about these things. And um, and then also really listening to them about what they need and what they want.
1: You. You just addressed because I wanted to ask about the role of social media, um, and and so you just really hit hit a home in a um, in a big way. That's hard, man. I mean, it's you know, as a as a mom, um, it's deeply personal, and as a professor now, it's also deeply personal because I see our our students are having a hard time communicating with one another. Very few people are talking um, In class, and it's possible that that's just in political science. Nobody really wants to talk, um, but but I think that it's a year and a half of not being in person, and I think I, I hadn't really considered the fact that if you're a college freshman or sophomore, you've never been a college student, and so they really are still high school students developmentally. Um, that is an interesting man. That's an interesting point. And then if they're on social media all the time, they really
2: don't have the skills to. Talk to each other. Plus, in political science, when you're a college person, like the best, I was a political science major. The best thing about being a political science major was arguing with people. That was the best part of the entire thing, was sitting in a small group of really smart people, some of which you vehemently did not agree with, and having really, really cool conversations with them. And now these people, for good reason, are so incredibly paralyzed because they're terrified that if they say something, one of their kids in their class is going to anonymously post something on their college site. It is so crazy to me. It's uh, uh, just makes me feel so again, it's like going back to, I have so much faith and so much love for young people as a cohort of people. It's it's what I've devoted my entire life to. And it makes me so mad because it's like, they're not, because they're not being the awesome people that I want them to be sometimes. And I get really yeah. sad for them because it's really cool and great to argue with people. Some of those people became my best friends in college. Um, I certainly had a tremendous amount of respect for them, um, regardless of if they disagreed with me when I was in a political science class. And,
1: and it's hard. It's It's just really, really hard these days to try and convince them that you you really can disagree with somebody and still be friends because they're not getting that modeled for them anywhere. Yeah. There is no like yeah. civil you know disagreement. It's just all angry and and horrible. Um, uh, you have a new book coming out in the spring, according to Amazon, the small boutique
2: bookshop. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, That independent bookseller that that hand-in-hand sells you books. (laughs) It's a a prestige
1: uh, outfit um, that very few people have ever heard of.
0: Small imprint.
1: Yes, it's very small. I believe the Brits call it Amazon. Um, uh, You, your friend and co-author, Shantara uh, McBride. Uh, I have a new book out calling that's called Courageous Discomfort, How to Have Important, Brave, Life-Changing Conversations About Race and Racism. So would you like to talk a little bit about what inspired you to write this book and what did you learn as you were writing it?
2: Well, this is the first time that I've answered these questions. Um, So, and I have to say full disclosure, I'm not quite sure when the book is going to come out because apparently supply chain problems in the United States means that paper is impossible to find. And you can't, um, oh yeah, this is a thing. Yeah, like my editor told me This is a thing. It's a thing. So apparently there's no paper and Mm -hmm. um, they can't, the the place or where you, um, for hardcover books, where you bind it, the correct way. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they, that can't happen either in a, in the way that I don't know what the, in the world is going on. But in any case, so it's going to come out sometime between May, which apparently is on Amazon. I didn't know that until this podcast and, um, and, and August 2nd. And the end 2nd. of time. And the end <laughs> of time. It, well, I think it's August 2nd is like my longest, you know, it's like the It's between apparently, according to Amazon, May 31st and August 2nd. Um, but the reason I wrote the book is, oh, no, actually, I'm going to say things that I'm really excited about, which is for the first time, because I've never been really psyched about my covers. And I've lost like pretty much every battle with a cover I've ever done. And so if you're a writer, you might know like how disappointing or how frustrating that can be. And so my cover this time are the colors that I wanted. And it's not the one that's on Amazon. And this is like a very small thing. It might seem like a very small thing but it's not a small thing. So um, I'm really super excited <laughs> that um, when pe- when you see lavender on the cover of this book, which is not what it is today, um, you will know that that lavender is because I advocated for it. But much more importantly, much more importantly, <laughs> is um, so I've been working, even though I don't think people, if you know my work, I don't think you would n- n- naturally, a lot of Because of Mean Girls, I think this is going to feel a far field for people for me. But I've been working on issues of racism and discrimination and bigotry from the very beginning, from the day I started working on these issues, I was connecting issues of group dynamics, dehumanization, degradation, and connecting it to how mechanisms of bigotry, discrimination in all forms work. And that was really the foundation of why I was doing what I was doing. And even in the first version of Queen Bees, I was writing about racism and the connection between racism and girls' friendships. And certainly racism is something that I've had to deal with in all different kinds of ways throughout all my years of work. And um, so I also have a friend and colleague um, for many years who has always also been um, very involved in the church. And today she is a pastor in the United Methodist Church. And her area, geog- the geographic area is Texas, is Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. And I've been wanting to write a book with her for or do something with her for a long time. And last summer, after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, we did a webinar, two of them, and we had so many people show up at these webinars and at the end of it, and we were just talking, she's a black woman who grew up in Texas. I'm a Jewish woman that grew up in DC. And, um, we, we were just talking sort of value that we were talking about. It's really rare for people of different life experiences to have a very strong friendship who also disagree and love each other and are in relationship with each other. And that's who we are. Although we do, we don't tend to disagree about a lot of things, but, um, And so we decided to write this book on 20 questions that people have asked us over the years. And that's what Courageous Discomfort became. So it's 20 questions like, so how racist does my family member have to be for me to say something to them? Um, You know, um, why isn't it all lives matter? You know, because people get so embarrassed about saying things like that, that they don't do that. Or do I, can I just not like someone? Does it always have to be about race? Or why does all of this stuff have to be so serious all the time? Um, And so we did these questions and then we created story. We didn't. We collected stories around the questions. And then what we did is we connected social emotional learning skills with understanding what was going on because these are such patterns that people, almost all of us can relate to having, being in a situation at work or in a family where somebody says something that you are horrified by. And then, if you say something, maybe you get ridiculed or dismissed, or someone tells you to be quiet. So we took those, we took those story, took those questions, took those stories, and then we unpacked them and explained what was going on. And then we gave a suggestion for how you do it better. And that's the book. The book is is really about how to have brave, life changing for yourself conversations about and how you show up with people that can be really, really difficult. So maybe Shantara and I can contribute to making a little bit more civility um, and dignity in our communities just a little just trying for a little tiny bit
1: (laughs) it feels like that is um a very central question right now especially in the area of education so um i'm it sounds like this book was a long time in the making um and it your timing i think is is
2: kind of perfect yeah isn't it more fun
0: just to go to the school board though and shout at people (laughs)
2: You know, I mean, I, I don't even have words. I'm like, I, I just don't. I just, I, I just, what I know is that this is what I think about a lot is that there's always understandable reasons why people do things that might look to you or me or whatever. It's like, why in the world would you conduct yourself like this? Why would you do that? And, um, and that actually has to be like a real question. Like, why, why are you doing this? Because there's always an understandable reason why people get up in the morning and say this thing that I'm about to do, this is the right thing to do. And, um, and so I am hopeful that I can maintain myself. I'm hopeful. I'm going to try my best to be, to maintain myself in the midst of this flurry of rage and anxiety and um, and thinking the worst of each other and that maybe all of the work I've done. And I do think I, you know, Sh- Shantara and I are both are educators. So to have two people who've worked in education with young people for 20 plus years who know parents and know kids this so well and in so many different ways we've worked in both of us worked in really conservative communities and so-called really liberal communities, which I rarely see, by the way, that they're as liberal conservative as they think they are. But um, to have two people like that who can speak to these issues in this way and bring this to the connection of anti-racism work, um, I am hopeful that our expertise and our commitment to treating others with dignity and being in these very difficult situations already and having a history of being able to be and present in these situations, that we'll be able to make some kind of contribution.
1: Ross, we, we look forward to the book coming out. Um, we have every hope and faith that you will make more than just a little bit of a difference. And um, and greatly appreciate you coming on to talk about all of this with us. Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely, thank you.
2: Oh my gosh, you're so welcome. This was, this was really fun.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we wanna remind you to visit our website, Network.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows and more That's network.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode and until then we'll play you out with friends of the show The Riders in the Sky Happy Trails to Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again Till we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.